beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it was B.B. Warfield, the great uh, Presbyterian theologian, that gave the following example about what it's like when you're reading the Old Testament. He says it's like you're in this very, very dark room. It's richly furnished and richly appointed, but there's just a little candle burning, and you can't really make out what's in the room very clearly. You get some hints as precious jewels and gold pieces of furniture and wall hangings kind of glitter in the candlelight, but you're not really seeing the whole picture. The whole picture, the lights turn on when you get to the New Testament, when the Lord Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and types. Then the light turns on and you start to see in all its glory what is only seen in figures and shadows in the Old Testament. And that's where we are. We're in Genesis we're in Genesis 14 this morning, and we, we, we were going through these shadows of what is to come. It's not always super clear. Sometimes it's easier than other times to kind of see the line of the coming Messiah. Sometimes it's harder. You think of the time when we dealt with Abram in Egypt, for instance. It was not super clear as to how that connected to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes you have the candle flare up. And things for a moment get quite bright. And that's what we have in our chapter of this morning. Because it's hard to miss the types of Christ in our text this morning, the, the foreshadowings of our coming Savior. Abram is a type of Christ as he battles the enemies in our chapter, as he rescues his kinsmen from slavery and brings freedom. And Melchizedek, well, Melchizedek, we don't have to try very hard to figure that one out because the Bible itself tells us in Psalm 110 that he is a type of Christ, that Christ is a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the great Davidic king and the great high priest. And then in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7, which we read, uh, draws out the implications of that. And so it's kind of exciting this morning as we have this very, very clear Christology in our chapter and also very exciting because we have a big battle and battles, of course, if you're not in them, they'd be quite exciting to read about. So we go to the first verse in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. And we stop right there. Because there's something unusual about the way that uh, Moses has recorded the order of these kings. It's notoriously difficult to work with ancient chronologies I think I've mentioned in a previous sermon that with the Egyptian chronologies, for instance, scholars can differ by as much as a thousand years as to which dynasty was when. It's tough to figure out. We don't have a lot of data to work with. The Mesopotamian chronologies are not as bad. We, we have variations that are as much as 250 years apart. So I just want to set the stage here for where we are most likely at in the history of the world here in Genesis 14, you've probably heard of Sargon of Akkad. I don't mean the YouTuber. I mean the guy that lived many years ago. And he had a great empire, the Akkadian Empire. It crumbled uh, towards the end of the third millennium BC. And, and after it crumbled and fell apart, for a time there was no other huge empire in the area of the Middle East. And so there were coalitions of kings. Local kings getting together in federations or, or covenants, and they would work together. And that's the, that's the situation we're, here in, we're, we're in in, Hebrew, in uh, Genesis chapter 14 here. 
there's a coalition of Mesopotamian kings. So it's certainly after the time of Sargon's empire. It's before the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, which will come up uh, after this. Now, as we read through the chapter, what do we learn about who the main king is here in this coalition? And as we read through, we look at uh, verse 4, for instance, and, and we look at verse 17, and we realize that Kedilomer is the, the big guy. He's the main king. He's the leader. Everybody else salutes him and follows his lead. So why is Amraphel listed first? Well, it's interesting that Amraphel is a translation, a possible translation of the Babylonian name Hammurabi. And you may have heard of Hammurabi. Hammurabi, his law code, the law code of Hammurabi, you may come across it in history. He was from Shinar. Shinar is the area of Babylon uh, where the, the Tigris and the Euphrates come together there. And before he became a great emperor, he was a junior king. And he had to say, yes, sir, and no, sir, to the kings of Elam. And who's the king of Elam? Well, that's Kedilomer. He's the guy that's running the show here. So it's quite possible, I can't be for sure, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that this minor king right now, Amraphel, is the man who later on will be the empire builder and the one who comes up with his law code, the law code of Hammurabi. And I believe that that's why he's listed here first in this list. Uh, in the scriptures, when something comes first, it usually has some kind of importance or significance as a meaning to it. And so these kings come down, and they make war with the five kings in the area that Lot moved to. And if you look at these five kings that they make war with, Sodom and Gomorrah and Zeboim and Adma and Zoar, the first four of those will later on be destroyed with fire from heaven. And Zoar is spared because Lot pleads with the angels to be allowed to flee there because it's just a little city. The name Zoar actually means little. So these are cities that will be destroyed eventually. And they've rebelled against those kings of Mesopotamia. The battle happens, look at verse 3, the battle happens in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So the area is probably to the east of the Dead Sea, and it's before Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed, so it's a very lush and fertile area. Now, why would these four kings come from over a thousand kilometers away to go beat up on these little five cities by the Dead Sea? Why would they do that? Well, look at verse 4. Twelve years they had served Kedilomer. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And so what you had during this time of coalitions of kings, and also before and after, you had the, the what was happening is you would have the greater and the more powerful kings, they would make covenants with the weaker kings, the vassal kings, the servant kings. And this covenant would have a preamble saying how great the great king was and what he had done for the vassal kings and how the vassal king should be thankful and should follow these and these rules and give these and these tributes. And the five cities by which uh, Lot was living, 
these five cities were located very close to the king's highway. So it's a little tough to do this in mirror image here, but from where you are, if this is the Mediterranean Sea to your left, and then here are the mountains that go up and down in Israel, up to the north is Mount Hermon, then we have the Jordan Valley, we have the, the uh, Sea of Galilee at the top, we have the Jordan going down, we have the Dead Sea here, and then on the right-hand side, or, or yeah, on your right-hand side, there's the King's Highway. It was a highway which led from the north down to the south and eventually to Egypt. So, so Palestine, Canaan, was, was kind of a, a land bridge between Africa and Europe and Asia and Mesopotamia. And we know, well, I think many of us do know, that when you're situated in a place of high traffic of goods and people, you stand to make a lot of money. You can, you can charge tolls. You have people coming through, merchants. They buy, they sell. You think, for instance, of the golden age of Holland. Some of you may have heard of the country of Holland, that little tiny country there in Europe, which for over 100 years, for about a, a century, was a, a, a world power because it was a center of trade and that a lot of money flowed through Holland and made it powerful. And that's what was happening at the time to Sodom and Gomorrah and those other cities. They were rich pickings. They were, they, they were fertile areas, and they were areas that were involved in, in trade. A lot of things were happening there. And what had happened for 12 years is that they were paying tribute to these kings a thousand kilometers away in Mesopotamia. They had the control, the financial, the economic, and the military control, but in the 13th year, they decided, we'd rather keep our money. We're not going to send it away to, to southern Mesopotamia. And you see how far away these, these ruling kings are, because it takes them till the next year to come and, and, and deal with the situation. It's going to take you at least a month of forced marches every day, which is a bit much for infantry. So probably it would have taken two or three months for them to show up in uh, that's how long it would take them to, to journey to the area that they wanted to teach a lesson. So in the 14th year, they arrive. But they don't just go straight to Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, no. If they're making this long journey, they're going to make it count. So what they do, and let's see if I can do this mirror thing again. So you've got the, you've got the Mediterranean, you've got the mountains, you've got the Jordan Valley, and to the right for you, to, to the east, you have the, the King's Highway. As they come down the east side of Canaan, they just defeat every tribe and every city and every people group along the way, teaching them all a lesson. We're here, we're in charge, pay your tribute. That's the lesson they're teaching. And so we have a whole list of people there in verse 5 and verse 6. The Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Enim, the, the Horites. And the kids might be interested to know the Horites in verse 6 are actually troglodytes. And you know what that means, right? A troglodyte is somebody that lives in a cave. So these were cave dwellers. And so they go all the way down to the, to the south. Then they go west towards the Mediterranean, and they defeat all the country of the Amalekites, which would have been kind of south of where Abram was staying at the Oaks of Memory. So they are causing, they, they come and they leave a wake, uh, they leave a, a, a trail of destruction in their wake. And now, in verse 8, it's time for the five cities of the Dead Sea area, the Salt Sea area, it's time for them to learn a lesson. 
And so the Mesopotamian troops are battle-hardened, they're flush with victory, and now they face off with the covenant-breaking kings of the five cities. And these covenant-breaking kings have been living in splendor, in luxury, in pleasure, living off the, the wealth of the land and the wealth of trade. And you know what happens to a country that is at peace for a long time. People get soft. The army gets soft. The soldiers can't run quite so fast and fight so hard. And so they lose. They lose even though they've got the home court advantage. And what they should have used militarily against their invaders is used against them. They fall into the tar sand traps. Local knowledge should have known about these. Local knowledge should have used these against the invader, but they end up falling into the local geographic features and they lose the battle. And so verse 11, the enemy takes everything, all the possessions and all the provisions, that means all the food, and verse 12, took lot. And you notice as I read the scripture how I emphasized that one phrase there in verse 12. They took lot. Where was lot? Was he dwelling in tents towards Sodom as we last met him? No way. He's dwelling in Sodom. Didn't take too long. He's right in there living with the ungodly, where life is really good, except until it's not good anymore, when he gets imprisoned by the enemy and dragged as a slave out of his city and out of his land. So verse 13, the, the, the word comes to Abram. He's about 30 kilometers away. And what does he do? Well, you know, sometimes when people we love hurt us and they make bad choices and then they, they suffer the consequences of those choices, sometimes we're tempted to say, well, you made your bed, you lie in it. You know, that serves you right. You know, you, you, just better, you, just, you better experience a little bit the results of your bad choices. We're kind of happy to let people kind of wallow and, and writhe and, and suffer because we think that's going to teach them a lesson. Now, of course, as parents especially, sometimes we do gently and lovingly and in a careful way allow our children to taste a little bit of the bitterness of, of sin because we love them and we want them to learn that it's a bad thing to choose. But the overriding disposition of the child of God is not one of judgment. It's not one of uh, being happy when somebody suffers, even because of their bad choices. But the overriding disposition of the child of God is to do exactly what Abram did. He says, my kinsman is in trouble. He's gotten into himself into a very bad situation. He's reaping what he has sown Armed for battle, men, take your weapons, and off Abram goes in hot pursuit. He doesn't want to leave Lot in the misery caused by his bad choices. He loves, because Abram, even though he lives many years before the Lord Jesus Christ, Abram is a follower and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what Christians do. We seek Freedom. We seek to share and bring freedom and healing and restoration to those enslaved by their choices and by their, by their sins. And so Abram, he goes and he pursues them, it says in verse 14, as far 
as Dan. Now, Dan, the Mediterranean, the mountains, the Jordan Valley here, Dan is kind of up around the level of the Sea of Galilee. A little bit more towards the Mediterranean, but it's, it's up around that level. And so that's a very long way away from where Abram is. It's about uh, probably 300 kilometers. So it's like getting 318 guys together and marching all the way to Calgary. Now, how long would it take you? Google tells me it takes 67 hours to walk. And that's without full military gear. It'd probably take longer if you're weighed down. So we're looking at least, if they're walking, if they're marching hard and they're doing forced marches of 10 hours a day, it's going to take them a week. And so it shows you how slow the enemy is moving. Have you ever tried to catch up with somebody on the highway that left five minutes before you? It doesn't work, right? If somebody's left before you, it's very, very hard, no matter how fast you go to catch up with them. So, so it shows you how slow the enemy was moving. The enemy, of course, had all kinds of animals and, and slaves and people they had captured, and they were, they were, they were victorious, and they weren't worried. They, weren't, they didn't think there was any threat, so they're just kind of ambling along, and Abram finally catches up with them in the north of the land of Canaan. Now, look at verse 15. What does Abram do? He divides his forces. That tells us something about Abram. Abram is a, is a businessman. He knows how to manage his flocks and his wealth. He's the leader of a large community. He's basically a, a, a small prince. He's got a community now of probably at least 2,000 people that he's in charge of. Plus, he's got these, these alliances with uh, local chieftains in the area. He knows his agriculture, and he knows uh, about herds and, and flocks. He knows about trade. He knows about making political and military alliances. He probably was even a scholar, a reader, a recorder of history. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that when Abram went to Egypt, he taught the Egyptians arithmetic. Well, it's not in the Bible, so it's not necessarily true, but it is an interesting footnote that we read in the, in the Jewish histories. So Abram is a very, very capable man. He's also a military strategist. He knows how to fight. He's got 318 trained men born in his house. These aren't people that he accumulated or acquired in Egypt recently. The Bible makes a point of saying they were born in his house. They've been with him for a very long time. And they know what they're doing. And so he divides his men. He divides his forces because that's what you do when you're attacking. And he is following classic military doctrine. He divides his forces. He attacks at night. Together with his allies, his forces are probably approaching about 1,000 men. If he's got 318, we can count maybe 200 for Aner, Eskel, and Memory each. It could be as many as 800 to 1,000 men that are working with Abram here. And if you think about an army that big, a thousand people. Even centuries before, Sargon of Akkad, the great emperor, had a standing army of about 5,400 men. So the, the armies were small in these times. The Mesopotamian kings probably had about 1,000 men or 1,500. They were slowed down by all their spoil and by the slaves. And look at what Abram does. He, he's victorious, chapter uh, 14, verse 16. He brings it all back. He defeats the kings who defeated the five cities. So he's a powerful man. 
He's got an army that defeated the invaders. He's more powerful than the invaders. He's more powerful than the five cities who stand there defeated. Abram and his allies, if they want, they can take over the whole place. They can take over Canaan. They can take over the five cities. They've got the military might to do that. But he doesn't do it. Because Abram is living by the promises of God. He is living by faith. He is waiting on the Lord. There's something we can learn from Abram. He had the means to take now what God was promising him by faith. But he didn't. He waited on the Lord. So it's instructive for the church today. We don't seek earthly power, brothers and sisters, to bring about the kingdom of God. That's not the way of faith. And so he's returned, verse 17, from defeating Kedalaomer, and he's met by the king of Sodom. And all of a sudden, we get this very strange interruption in the biblical narrative. Out of the blue in history, out of the blue in the biblical record, appears Melchizedek. There's no mention of his fathers and his ancestors, no mention of his descendants. And he is Melchizedek, Melchi, King Zedek, righteousness, King of righteousness, King of peace. Salem here is probably the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is city which, whose foundations are peace. Jeru is foundations, Salem is peace. And he brings out bread and wine. This, this mysterious figure who the New Testament says is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings out bread and wine. What, what's happening here? Well, the Bible tells us. Our text says he was priest of God most high. Now, some commentators, you read them and they say, well, yeah, there are all kinds of gods, and so this was some great Canaanite god that, that this Melchizedek guy was, was worshiping. But that's not what the Bible says. First of all, look at what Abram says in verse 22. He, he uses the same description of God as Melchizedek does. Melchizedek says, God most high possessor of heaven and earth. And so Abram says in verse 22, the Lord Yahweh, God most high possessor of heaven and earth. And in Hebrews, the same language is used, the most high God. This is the true God that Melchizedek worships. What's happening here? Well, this is one of the leftovers of the knowledge of God from the time of Noah and the flood. Job is another figure in the ancient Near East who was a follower of God who's not connected to Abram and to the people of Israel. So there are still some leftovers, still some people that know God and, and worship him. They're going to die out, and, what's gonna, and God's going to work more with the people of Israel from now on. But they're still around some of them. What does Abram do as he is blessed by Melchizedek? Well, Abram keeps covenant. He submits as a vassal to the great king of kings. What does Hebrews 7 say? The inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek is his superior before God. Melchizedek represents the Lord himself. And Abram submits through Melchizedek to the king of kings, and gives them a tithe, gives them one-tenth of all the spoils. Now, one-tenth was a royal tribute given to kings. One-tenth was a temple tribute given to the gods. And in this case, it's both. It's a royal, and it's a worshipful tribute to his god and king. So Melchizedek is, in fact, a prophet and a priest and a king. He, 
it reflects the threefold office of the Lord Jesus. And what we have in this last verses of our chapter is this amazing moment where one type of the Lord Jesus Christ meets another type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Abram is also a prophet. He gets revelation. He is a priest. He gives, he makes sacrifices and builds altars, sacrifices, right, to sacrifice animals. And he is a king. He rules. He conquers. He defeats the enemies of the kingdom of God when God calls him to do that. And so our father in the faith here gives honor to the one who even more gloriously foreshadows the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 7, the apostle talks about that. What we have in this little section at the end of chapter 14 is the whole Old Testament dispensation, the whole Old Testament priesthood, which is still on the loins of Abram, giving honor to a different type of priest, to the priest after the order of Melchizedek, to the type of the one who will fulfill every shadow of the Old Testament. Abram gives honor here to the priest, prophet, and king, Jesus Christ, the one we sang about in Psalm 110. And so the king of Sodom in verse 21, he says, well, give me the persons, keep the stuff. The king of Sodom doesn't have a lot of negotiating power here. He's been defeated And Abram is victorious, not only over the invading four kings, but over the local five. He's in a position of power. He can call the shots. This is a great chance for Abram to get ahead, to take over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to start charging the the taxes and the the tolls for the, the merchant caravans that come through. Abram has this massive break here. He he can become a very, very powerful local king and start his little empire. But he says, no thanks. I don't want it. I've made an oath to my covenant God, Yahweh. I will not accept the things of the world to help me to get ahead. I live by faith. I live in covenant with God. I will not look to the things of this world to give me power or pleasure or meaning or satisfaction. I live by faith. And you know what? Look at verse 24. I'll take what I need for sustenance, whatever the young men have eaten, I'll just take what I need to keep on going with my pilgrimage of faith. But I will not take one thread more or one sandal strap more. Let those men that have come with me have their portion. You know, that kind of an attitude, when you have the world at your feet and you have an incredible opportunity to really make it big, that kind of an attitude of, no thanks, I don't need that the world cannot understand. It's always delightful. Have you ever had it that somebody's offered you a free lottery ticket? I've had it a couple of times. One time I was in Brazil and the person at the wicket where I was paying a bill said, oh, the, the lottery is, is really big today. And uh, here, would you, would you like a ticket? And I said, no thanks, I don't need it. And the, and the reward was in the millions. And the person looked at me and thought, probably why, he doesn't look like he doesn't need it. But that's the way of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters, that we don't need the things that the world thinks are so important. God is my share. God is my portion. God is my reward. And the world can come with all of its temptations and all of the things it finds so important. And we can say, no thanks, I'm not interested. I will wait on the Lord. I will trust in the promises. I will live by faith, I am waiting for something better. Brothers and sisters, as we stand before our text this morning, 
what do, we, what do we learn for ourselves and for our walk of faith in 2020? Well, in the Old Testament, the Old, the Old Testament church is a, is a child. Spiritual truths are written in bold, bright, simple pictures for people to understand. And in the Old Testament, from time to time, there's even actual battles with physical enemies when that's necessary. But already here in our text, we see Abram with the eye of faith. He knows, he understands that that's not where it's at. That physical conquest and gaining land and power and possessions through physical force is not the way that the kingdom of God will advance. He knows that it goes deeper than that. He knows that God seeks our hearts. That's where the real battle lies, in the heart and in the mind. That's where the kingdom of God advances, when people wait on the Lord, when people worship the Lord, when people love the Lord, when people depend on the Lord, when people serve the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And what a difference between Abram and Lot here. Lot aligned himself with the covenant breakers. He embraced the lure, the lust of the eye. The lust of the flesh and the pride of life, he embraced the lure of riches and comfort. He distanced himself from the true worship of God because it was too inconvenient, because it was too uncomfortable, because it cramped his style, and he reaped what he sowed. But he doesn't learn, does he? As we read further in the chapters in Genesis, we'll see that he just goes right back to where he had been. But our father in the faith is different. Our father says, Father Abram, he says, you know, whom do I have in heaven but you, God? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The world is offering power, money, fame, luxury, possessions, but I say God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And it is through that faith, my brother and sister, that the kingdom advances. And it advances throughout the Old Testament until finally that great son of Abram arises. He comes to rescue us, his brothers. He triumphs over the enemies in his victory on the cross. And he delivers us and he sets us free from the sin to which we were enslaved. And as that great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, the conquering king, sets before us that victory meal, that covenant communion meal of bread and wine. That's where things are heading. That's what's important. And we are children of Abram. We live today in the land that God has promised to us. This world has been promised to us. But yet we're sojourning in it. We can't put down too many roots the way it is right now. We're waiting for the day when he will give it to us as our inheritance. So every day we go forth to battle. And there are forces which attack and enslave or try to enslave us and and enslave our loved ones. And we fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil. And we do it as prophets and priests and kings. As church, we do it through preaching and catechizing and home visits and pastoral care and Bible studies and life renewal and all kinds of other things. Then every Sunday, we are met along the way of our pilgrimage We may be bruised and battered and bloodied and tired from the fight, but every Sunday, our King of Righteousness, our Melchizedek, our King of Peace, our Melchizedek, he sets before us a table and he refreshes us with his body and blood in the bread and the wine. 
He sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And though we might be bruised and bloodied by the battle, we are more than conquerors. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't look for the accolades, the rewards, the oh-so-tempting offers of this world. We live by the promises. We don't get tangled up, weighed down by the seductive comforts and pleasures of wealth and possessions of this life. They're just tools. They're things to be used. Let others have their share. We'll take what we need for sustenance. We'll take what we need just to be able to keep on pilgrimaging, to sustain us as we march forward in service to the eternal kingdom of God. And we wait with eager expectation. For that day when the great son of Abram, that great son of David, that great king of righteousness, that great king of peace will come again. And he will rescue us, his brothers and sisters. The day of the last battle, when all the kings of the earth and all the forces of rebellious and sinful man will be arrayed against the Lord and his anointed, and he will destroy them with the breath of his mouth. And after that last and final battle, We will sit down with the true Melchizedek and we will enjoy the eternal feast of bread and wine in the kingdom of God. And on that day, as we've sung in the song, on that day all the nations will worship the God of Abraham. Jesus will reign over the whole world and we shall reign with him. We shall take possession of our inheritance. We shall finally be at home with the Lord. That's what the story of Abram and the kings and Melchizedek and Lot, that's what this story is pointing towards. We shall be home with the Lord. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.